chapter 2. And the, the sermon today, the word that I have for you, is verses 13, 14, 15. There's uh, three verses there, which we will read through a few times as we, as we go through the sermon. But I want to back up and read the whole context. I, I want you to see how this comes up, as it were, um, how the bud grows up out of the plant. So I'm going to back up to verse 8 and read through to verse 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the flesh of the body by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with Leo demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Pray again with me, please. Father, here is your word, and here are your people. You have raised your Son and poured out your Spirit. And we ask that you would work, you would glorify him, that you would give to us the comfort and the strengthening and the wisdom of trusting you. Pray in his name. Amen. Christians, listen. There is no case of justice against you and there is no compelling power over you. Christ has delivered you. Christian, listen again. There are no charges of sin outstanding against you and there are no forces that rule you. Christ has delivered you. Christian, by faith, Christ, you are righteous. You are free. Righteousness and liberty are God's gift to you. No case, no compulsion. You may think that sounds glorious, but exaggerated. Later in this letter, Paul addresses slaves. Christian slaves do not continue in servitude because God opposes them for their sins. Christian slaves do not continue in servitude because their masters have obtained legal ownership. 
slaves give you a stark example. These Christians show how the gifts of righteousness and liberty enable you to feed on Christ and glorify him in your day-to-day -day life and in the extraordinary seasons that often overwhelm us. In this letter, Paul is rejecting that confusing question. Am I a good enough Christian? That is not a Christian question. That is Jesus obscured by the question that lurks, that haunts every fallen person. And it really is a two-sided question. Am I good enough to survive what's coming at me? Am I good enough to accomplish what's required from me? Now, I know there are optimists and pessimists and realists. And each of those answer this same lurking question. I know there are different philosophies of life. Uh, stoicism, existentialism, scientism, hedonism. Recently, we hear much of Marxism, capitalism, racism, anti-racism, progressivism, conservatism. Each of these, and the ones that you and I favor of those, are an example of human tradition and some answer to the basic question, how can I survive? How can I accomplish? In verses 13 through 15, Paul declares how faith in Christ defends you against all the isms and the impulses and the insidious alternatives, the water in which you swim. Here is the antidote that you must carry. It, it is to be enjoyed first and foremost because here is your God. Yet you must also cherish it for refreshment and reorientation in the face of deceit. A Christian can take on a sense of foreboding. What is God going to do with me? He controls everything, and I keep sinning. If I don't do better, how will he react? A Christian can take on a sense of futility. I can't do it. I can't expect to live for Christ. Sin is just too strong, and I'm just not godly enough unless I find some new something. Now, later in this letter, Paul will instruct us how to fight against sin. But it's not by stoking your anxiety or by offering you an enslaving silver bullet. As we, we come to verses 13 to 15, realize that here, Paul is unfurling what he first declared in short form, what he first said crisply in verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verses 13 and 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them 
in him. In these verses, each verse starts with your emptiness, dead in sin, guilty, enslaved. And each verse speaks of the powers that rule sinners, death, the flesh, the law, until at last that comprehensive plural, the rulers and authorities. And each verse pulls the Lord Jesus at the center, pulls the body of the Lord Jesus at the center, raised from the dead, nailed to the cross, and ascending physically to the right hand of the Father. This is how God fills your emptiness. By his death and resurrection, Jesus removes the case against you and defeats the powers that compelled you. These are not just ideas or doctrines. These are events. God acted in history to actually save sinners. God has done this, Christian. There is no case against you. There is no power that enslaves you. Now, at first glance, verses 13 to 15 may seem awkward. They are historical, but they aren't chronological. First, Jesus rose from the dead. Then he was crucified. What is Paul doing? Remember, the Colossians were offered a counterfeit based on the Old Testament. Paul's first answer, which you heard last week, started with baptism, emphasizing that the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled only in Christ and only in Christians. Now, as he unfurls the answer more fully, he begins with that Old Testament expression of God's promise, and then he explains how God's fulfillment is grander and more glorious than even the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection. And you, who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Perhaps this seems to be a repetition from the previous verse. But notice the difference. First he spoke of baptism and our resurrection with Christ. Here he speaks of the actual resurrection. The sign brings to us what Christ actually did. What did he do in rising from the dead? He forgave us all our sins. Our sins overwhelmed us in death. His resurrection raises us because it gives us forgiveness. But how can that be? How can the God of all justice forgive you? It's not magic. It's not God violating his own love for righteousness and hatred of sin. By canceling the record of death that stood against you with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You are not vaguely guilty. Sinners are not in some general way just satisfactory to God. It's not some divine prejudice or grudge. God has a specific and exact knowledge of each person, of your conduct, and of your character. It's tallied up like a bill. 
And the specifics are not just about you. Those legal demands, they are a debt towards God. Your character and conduct are measured by his exacting righteousness. This is why the question, am I good enough, is at bottom a sense of foreboding. And here's what God has done. He has removed your debt. The legal case against you has not just been put on hold. It's been canceled. Paul's expression is even more final than canceled. Some administrative shuffling of your case into the not-to-be-acted-upon file. No. Paul says that the handwritten record of your sins has been erased, washed out of the paper. The record is gone. God carried out this erasure by nailing the ugly details to the cross, by nailing the Lord Jesus to the cross. Your debt is paid. This is not just forgiveness. This is justice. And there is no more justice waiting to be served on your head. There is no more divine wrath for you because the wrath fell bodily on the Lord Jesus. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Paul goes further. Partly this is because the false teaching troubling the Colossians gives great importance to the powers and to interacting with those powers in the right way. And Paul's climax is punching that deceitful philosophy square on the nose. But this is not just Paul answering their crazy ideas. Paul's teaching gives serious attention to the powers. Oh, that he, he mentions death, sin, the law, the flesh, the demons. And I fear that may seem odd to you, spooky, spooky and, and weird. Somewhere between Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. Just, really? So I want to briefly join divine justice and the rule of these powers over fallen humanity. You need to see that it is in God's justice that this servitude came about. Paul speaks repeatedly of sin and death ruling over sinners. In Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 2, he describes those outside of Christ, saying, you once were. He describes them as, quote, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. As I've mentioned before, Paul speaks of the flesh as not only appearing in human hostility to God, that grievous moment that you don't want broadcast. No, in Colossians 5.17, he speaks of the flesh in general acting in purposeful conflict against the Holy Spirit. 
sin invokes, involves these powers. Part of God's judgment on sin is the enslavement of sinners to the rulers and authorities. Jesus describes his ministry and not just driving out demons this way in Mark 3.27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Hear Jesus speak more directly in John 8. This is verses 34 following. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father, the devil. The case against your sins is gone. God erased it by crucifying his son in your place. There is no more penalty hanging over you. So, of course. You will be set free from the compelling power of the flesh and the provoking power of the law and the impressive power of death. But just like the removal of the legal case against you, your deliverance from enslavement to sin is not an administrative action or a logical conclusion which is noted and recorded. Jesus has set you free. It was a fist fight. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I don't know if you can credit what I'm about to declare. It, it's far from the unspoken, but, but firm assumption we often entertain. Christian, you are no longer under the compelling power of the flesh. You are no longer a slave to sin. Jesus has disarmed the powers that ruled you and made sin your all and all. He did not just give them a setback or initiate a plan to free you later. They are mighty. They rule all mankind. Jesus has shown them to be weak and unable to stop him. They lost. They are no longer defending their rule over you. They have been captured. The last clause Paul uses can be easily misunderstood. Triumphing over them. Triumphing over them does not simply mean he won a battle against the powers. He is triumphant. No, no, no. It means that his enemies, those powers, are utterly defeated and humiliated. Triumphing, the, the, the verb that Paul uses here, is a technical term from the Roman military. When a Roman general defeated a city or an enemy army, he dictated in full terms of surrender. 
The average foot soldiers will be sold into slavery. The officers and the political leaders would be put in chains and carried off to Rome. On arrival, the Roman general would conduct a formal triumph celebration. Along with the soldiers, the victor would parade through the city of Rome. All the gold and plundered, all the gold and plundered captured would be heaped on wagons to display the spoils of complete victory. The enemy generals and officers and political figures would walk chained behind their wagons through the streets, exposed to the mocking jeers and taunts of the celebrating Romans. At the conclusion of the parade, the high-ranking officers and leaders would be thrown in prison or rock and later be executed unceremoniously. This is what it means that God triumphed over them in Jesus. The powers that enslave our sinful lives no longer have power over us. Jesus has ascended bodily to the right hand of the Father. He has dragged his captors after him and consigned them to prison. They await execution. I said before, that this may sound glorious, but exaggerated. Paul has more to say, and we will endeavor to listen carefully in weeks to come. But here, Christian, there is no case against you. There is no compulsion over you. It is glorious. It is not exaggerated. Christian, God no longer has accusations and penalties for you. Christian, you are no longer hopelessly stuck in sin and its ever-intensifying energy. You need nothing more than more of Christ, more of his instruction, and nurture and grace. This is not exaggerated. You will see cause and result consequences from your sin sometimes. Yes, God will bring hardship into your, to your life to train you, but never to curse you. Jesus has been cursed in your place. This is not exaggerated. This liberty he's given you. Read on in Colossians 2 and 3, and you will see that the believer still has a war with sin. You are not a slave. You are an able, hale combatant on the winning side. You certainly need training, but you have the sword of the Spirit, and you hold the shield of faith. In Christ, you will not be punished. And in Christ, you can please God in your life. Your question is not how to survive, but how to thrive. Your question is not how to accomplish, but what should I accomplish? God has done this in His Son, 
to have glory in his people. He has raised you with Christ, and he has triumphed. You are the trophies of his victory. Pray with me. Father, your son said that the word was so When casting the seed, some on the path, some on the rocky ground. Oh Lord, we know that this word is good. And we ask you to defend us against the devil who would snatch it from our attention. We ask you to, oh Lord, to work in us that you would give us depth, that this word would germinate deep into us. We ask that you protect us from all the things about us so common, but truly thorns, that this word would not be choked out. We want the fruit of your son's work. We ask it as the dead to have resurrection. Fill us with heaven. We pray in your name. Amen. Please stand.